Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Dear Zion, grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. For the past 2,000 years, people from all around the world, of every language and nation, have been waking up early on Sunday morning and gathering together in one place. And it's all because one day a man was brutally beaten and crucified before the eyes of men. His cold and lifeless corpse was peeled off of the cross. It was placed into a tomb covered with a 6,000-pound stone, sealed, guarded by soldiers. And then by Sunday morning, the tomb was empty. And the linens were folded. The stone was rolled away. He was seen by hundreds of people, alive, well, talking, walking, and eating. For 2,000 years, people have come to church every Sunday morning because a man rose from the dead on a Sunday morning, the first day of the week. I'm assuming that most of you here today are here because you're a Christian. And what that means is that you believe in Jesus Christ, who is in every respect true man, and also in every respect fully and truly God. That he died on the cross and paid the penalty for all of the sins in the world. Not just a spiritual death or a, 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 a metaphorical death, but an actual death. And that three days later, he physically, really, truly came back to life. Not spiritually, not metaphorically, but truly in his body. That's, that is the definition of a Christian. That is what a Christian is. And that's why I'm assuming that you are here, that you believe this, that you hold not only to these words, but all of the words of Holy Scripture. <clears throat> so my question to you this day is this. How do you know that? If that is your belief, if that's what you hold dear, and that's the center of your life, as a Christian, how do you know that he rose from the dead? How do you know it's true? To be Christians, you have, I'll put it another way. To be a Christian, do you have to take a leap of faith in order to then be a Christian like this and believe this? What makes Christianity worth following or worth waking up on a Sunday morning for? Over the years, I've talked to people of different religions, different uh, beliefs and worldviews, and I ask them the same question. I say, look, what makes your religion or worldview worth following? Uh, how do you know it's true? And did you have to take some sort of leap of faith? And what was the leap of faith that you had to, to overcome? And the answer they've given is yes. Yeah. I've had to take a leap of faith. I've even asked this question to some Christians, and they've said the same thing. Yes, I have to take a leap of faith. So faith for them is something that you can't actually believe on evidence or reason. It's, it's sort of this existential notion that you, you, you're, you're, at, you're in the dark, you're blinded, 
and you just jump off into the darkness with this blind leap of faith and that you hope it works out in your favor. You, you hope you are right. That's what the leap of faith is. Do you know what that sounds like to me? Uh, gambling. Or playing the lottery with your life. Or betting on horses. You, what you do is you take a guess and you say, okay, there's all these different religions. I pick this one. I don't know if I'm right. I'm just going to take the leap of faith and I hope it works out in the end. And when am I going to find out? When I die. And then it's too late to change your mind or consider anything else. Uh, <clears throat> atheists do in fact ask their subjects to take a leap of faith. To believe that everything, everything came from Nothing. Mormons, Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, Hindus, Scientologists, and so on and so forth, take a leap of faith. They trust, they simply trust the leader. You ask them, look, why should I believe in this guy? Why should I believe that he got his information from God? And they would say something like, look, I can't prove it to you, but you've got to take his word for it. It is true. Just believe deep down in your heart, and it is true. That's the substance of it. Uh, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, uh, you would ask him, why should I trust you? Why should I trust you that God spoke to you? And he would say, look, just trust me. The angel Moroni spoke to me in a forest all alone. Nobody else was there to see it. And that is the leap of faith. You just have to trust that that happened, even though nobody else saw it. Uh, Muhammad, the founder of Islam, You'd ask him the same question and he would say, look, just trust me, the angel Gabriel came and spoke to me in the wilderness all alone. Nobody else saw it. Just trust me. All say it. Ellen G. White, L. Ron Hubbard, Confucius, Siddhartha Gautama, the Dalai Lama, all essentially say, take this leap of faith. <clears throat> The resurrection, on the other hand, of Jesus Christ is entirely different. It is entirely different. Here's why. Because the Bible has not asked a single one of you to take a blind leap of faith. It hasn't. It has not asked you to take a blind leap of faith regarding the resurrection of Jesus. There is no leap here. It's not there. The Bible is simply asking you to review some simple facts concerning the data of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is obvious and provable to open minds. It's not asking you to take a blind leap of faith into the darkness, but to gather, to look at, to consider and investigate the evidence before you, and then to step firmly onto the ground of history. That is what is asking you to do, the solid ground of history, which is certain and confident faith in Christ. That's simply how the Bible speaks. It speaks with assurance, and it refers to an event that is seen in public. Just I'm, for the next part here, I'm just going to throw out a number of examples, but consider Acts chapter 17. Paul goes to Athens, Greece. He's surrounded by Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. 
which are making that their philosophy is making a comeback even today. Uh, they t- they hear him. They hear what he's saying. They take him to the Areopagus, uh, the governing council, where they uh, decide court cases and things like this. Uh, the brightest men, the brightest men, are all gathered there. Philosophers, doctors, and so on and so forth. Paul stands in the middle of them and he's talking to people who did not witness the resurrection of Christ. They were not there standing at the tomb when it opened and when Jesus walked out. They didn't see that. And in fact, he's talking to them about 20 years after the fact of this resurrection. And on top of that, it's not only that they didn't witness it, but they are skeptical of the resurrection. They are against it. They're antagonistic, cynical, rejected the idea that anyone could rise from the dead. That's foolishness. Paul speaks, and then he ends his sermon with this. He says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And here it is. And he has given us assurance to all of this by raising him from the dead. That is what it's founded on. So Paul says, look, there's a day when a man named Jesus is going to come back and he's going to judge the entire world. So all men everywhere should repent of their sins. That's going to happen. And then they say, well, on what basis should we believe that? How should I know that? How am I supposed to know that? And Paul doesn't say, look, well, just take my word for it. Just take the leap of faith and just believe it in your heart. No, he says, because God raised him from the dead. And then he points to a historical moment, a day in history. Some of the Greek philosophers immediately mocked him. They just scoffed. They just started uh, to laugh and dismiss him. However, others said, we want to hear you about this again, another time. I want to hear more of what you have to say. In other words, look, I don't believe you, but you just made an outrageous claim that somebody rose from the dead, and I'm going to check it out. And I'm going to look into it, and I'm going to investigate the evidence or whatever proof or history there is. uh, And I I want to know, did he really die? Was he really buried? Uh, Did they find the right tomb? Who saw him? Where are those people? So on and so forth. Well, one of those guys was named Dionysius. He was an Athenian judge who was skeptical of the resurrection. He rejected it. He was a prominent man in Greece. He was an intellectual. He heard Paul further, he investigated, and he became a Christian by investigating the evidence. St. Luke the Evangelist, I I don't know if you know this, but Luke did not see Jesus alive out of the grave. Luke didn't see that. Rather, he did research. He interviewed eyewitnesses. He talked to all the people, not just Christians. And then he writes this in his letter uh, of Acts. He says, Jesus presented himself alive to the twelve after suffering by many convincing, infallible proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. In other words... Luke says, look, I have looked into the evidence 
I haven't found, uh, I, and I haven't found things that encourage me to take a leap of faith. I have found convincing and infallible proofs that this man was alive. That's how he speaks. Mary Magdalene, she goes to the tomb. She brings oil and spices. Why? To anoint a dead body. That's why she's going. That's what she's holding in her hands. She knew Jesus was dead. She didn't believe he was alive or that he could be. Mary Magdalene saw Jesus. He told her then to tell the disciples. And she went and told the disciples and they didn't believe her. The Emmaus disciples, they're walking to Emmaus. They are sorrowful. They are crestfallen because Jesus died and he wasn't coming back. Then they saw Jesus and they ran back. That two hour, that, that, that time of two hours that it took them to walk there. They ran back, they told the other disciples, and the other disciples did not believe them either. The disciples were locked in a room, afraid of the Jews, they, and, and Jesus, because Jesus was dead, and they said, if this is what they do to him, what are they going to do to us? He's not coming back. They saw Jesus, then they believed. And then Jesus rebuked them. Because they didn't accept the eyewitnesses that came to them before. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this. He says, this is very briefly after the events of the resurrection. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. He says, most of whom are still alive. 500 people at once, most of whom are still alive, meaning Go down the road and ask him. And then go to the next house and ask him. And ask him and ask him. Ask her. Ask all of these people. Why, why would Paul write such an outrageous thing if it could have been so easily disproven? Just, just one of those 500 had to simply say, nope, it didn't happen. But they didn't. None did. We, we have this sort of uh, <clears throat> arrogant and ignorant idea nowadays that everyone who came before us is stupid. <laughs> and that we are the only ones who have things figured out. We're the only ones. We think it, it was way easier to convince someone back then that a guy rose from the dead than it is to convince someone here today. And that's not true. It's not true. It, it is no easier to convince someone at any time that someone rose from the dead. Yeah, yes, look, today, yes, I know, we have more technology. We have lights, we have planes, we have the phone, uh, internet, things like this. But the common person is not smarter. Uh, they didn't have phones and satellites, but they knew what a dead body was. They knew what death was. That's nothing new. That, that's been around all the time. They, and they knew it, in fact, better than we do today. Because we've completely outsourced our dealing with death to other, to, to companies, 
to other things. If somebody is in your home and dies, well, what do you do? You call someone and they come and they deal with the dead body. And then they put makeup on the body so it doesn't look as dead. And so they cover the stench and all this sort of stuff so that you don't, there's this distance nowadays. Back then that did not exist. If somebody died in your home, who took them? You. Who carried them? You. Who buried them? You did. They were well acquainted with death. They saw it all around. They, they remember the smell of death. So to, tell me, to, to say that they don't know what a dead body looks like, it's outrageous. But they didn't realize that Jesus wasn't dead or something like this. It's, it's, it's a, an absurd claim. Uh, the, the Greek poets, the Stoics, the philosophers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, everybody, the emperors, they all dealt with the same problem that we have today, and that is that death is real, that you die, and that you don't come back. That's why they write poems about death. And they have all these theories about what happens about death. Well, because they couldn't solve it. They reject the resurrection. There's no such thing as that. Everybody, everyone knows this. The women who went to the tomb knew that. The disciples knew that. Peter knew that, Thomas knew that, Luke knew that, Dionysius knew that, the 500 knew that. They did not believe, they did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul murdered people just for saying that somebody rose from the dead. He murdered them for saying Jesus rose from the dead. They all saw Jesus die and they all did not believe in the resurrection. And here's the point. Eventually, they all did. And not just the women or the disciples, but thousands upon thousands were convinced of the truth by looking into it. They were convinced, not to some small degree, just to show up once a year on Easter. They were convinced so much so that hundreds and thousands of them, thousands of them gave up their lives as martyrs because of this. Uh, some people will object here, I know, and they'll say, look, yes, pastor, but there have been people in cults and other religions who have died for what they believe in, what they believe to be true. And my response is, yes, that's exactly the point. <laughs> people are willing to die for what they are convinced of. People are not willing to die for something that they made up something or a lie that they get nothing out of. Look, there's a big difference here, by the way. Those in cults and political groups have given up their lives for an idea or a cause to further it that can't be proven or disproven. It's some ideology, something like this. It's just a strong opinion they have on how a government should be run or on, on just some theoretical thing. However, these Christians gave up their lives not for some abstract idea, but because of a historical event that people could go and see and witness. Uh, one more point on that is that those in cults tend to end their own lives as an escape from the position they've put themselves in. They, they actually don't even have a will to live anymore and that their death is the escape. But these Christians, they didn't take their own lives. They were martyred. That means they had a will to live. They didn't want to die. But on the one hand, it's, it's either death or deny the truth. And they said, I'm not going to deny the truth of what I saw. I'm completely convinced of it. And they died. This has been the case throughout all history. Many who investigate this claim have been uh, convinced 
Even in our day, there's a long list of atheists and agnostics who set out to disprove the resurrection by looking at all of the evidence. And in the process, they became convinced of the resurrection. There are people sitting in church right now that, that I know of, that you, you guys have told me. You're here today, I see you. Uh, who were skeptics for years or decades. And then you considered the evidence and the history, and you're here today. You've been convinced of this. In fact, serious critical and skeptical scholars and academics, they looked into this, uh, have, and they've de denied a lot of things about Jesus, a lot of things, his miracles, the things he said, so on and so forth. But there are five facts that even the most skeptical uh, academics and scholars agree upon. Even though they deny the resurrection, they agree upon these facts, and they say that these are reliable facts, and these are it. Uh, first, that Jesus existed, and that he died by crucifixion. They all agree that his tomb was empty. Third, they all agree that his disciples saw him. Fourth, they all agree that the skeptical brother of Jesus, his own brother, was skeptical of him and mocked him in his life. All of a sudden became convinced that Jesus rose from the dead and was the Messiah. Paul, the persecutor of Christians, became convinced of the resurrection. Those five things, that's reliable. That's where you make your, your argument from. So many have proposed theories and ideas that, look, this was all a hoax. What did they get out of it? Uh, the hallucination, they got the wrong tomb. Uh, somebody stole the body. This is my favorite one. There was a secret twin of Jesus that showed up on Easter. I mean, these are all laughable and just absurd. They all have fallen flat and cannot explain how those five things come together without an actual resurrection. Critics, in fact, if you follow this, critics have stopped trying to come up with new theories to disprove the resurrection. They've given up. They've just given up on that endeavor. You just say, I just don't want to believe it. I don't believe it. That's ridiculous. No, that, that, I, my conclusion is firm. But they... They can't change these facts. Okay. I know I'm, uh, I'm not naive. And I know that some can't be convinced. And I get it. But it's not because there's no evidence to convince them. It's simply because they don't want to be convinced. They don't want to look into it. My guess, and I could be wrong here, but this is my guess from what I've seen in my short life, is that I think they don't want to seriously consider this because they're afraid of what that would mean for them. That they would have to give up a certain lifestyle, a certain habit or sin, or give up an identity that they've created in their head about themselves. And that they don't want to live without that sin. And they know that the logical conclusion is that if Jesus rose from the dead, then he is God. And that if he is God, then he wants all men everywhere to repent. Well, I don't want to repent. So then why don't I just reject the, the first thing? That he rose, that he is God. If this is the case, <clears throat> let me be very honest with all of you. 
You cannot, you cannot afford not to look into this. You can't. The stakes are way too high. The clock is ticking. You have a real problem before you. A day is coming sooner than you think when your body will fail for illness or accident or a disease or whatever. And everything you've said or done or accomplished or won or bought or used or lost in this life will be completely and utterly useless to you in that moment. The hour is coming when your lungs will breathe their last breath. When your heart will beat its final beat and the lights of your eyes will grow dim and you'll die. That moment is coming. It could be today. This is true for all of you. For all of you, it's also true of your husband and your wife and your children. That is the reality. People die. The day is coming, and I know it doesn't feel that way now, but uh, the day is coming soon. It is very soon. I know it doesn't feel that way now, but when it comes, everybody universally has told me, I wasn't ready for this. I was not ready. I was not expecting this. I know you don't want to hear this on Easter morning, and some of you have been here. Uh, some of you haven't, haven't been here since last year, and this is what you come to again. But what I'm saying is true. You don't have to believe me or take a leap of faith that people die. It is true. Just open your eyes and look around you. You know what death is. You can avoid it only for so long. The point I'm making is this. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then nothing else matters. Nothing else matters if he didn't rise from the dead. We're all going to die. And so just enjoy life while you can. But nothing lasts. Nothing matters. Nothing means much. Good times will end. It is... Your life is vapor, is vanity, meaningless. It all goes away if Jesus did not rise from the dead and then nothing else matters. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, nothing else matters. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then nothing else matters. That means there is a God who knows you and loves you. That means there is a resurrection. That means there is forgiveness for sin. That means there is salvation. And there is true joy and peace. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then everything else pales in comparison to it. And that means that nothing else really matters. That means all the trouble and all the sorrows of this life, in fact, they don't really matter all that much. I'm not taking away from or minimizing your sin or your, your sorrow or your pain, but all I'm saying is that Jesus, if Jesus lives, then all of the bad stuff, all of the oppressive governments, the lockdowns, the wars, the nuclear threats, inflation, shootings, loneliness, illness, disease, your cancer, your trouble, in the end, is not going to matter very much or at all. Because... If Jesus lives, 
then death itself doesn't matter. Because it's not the end. Dear saints, Christ lives. And he lives not in your heart, or spiritually, or metaphorically. The tomb is empty. He lives. He resurrected. He resurrected from the dead. And he promises to this same thing would happen to all of those who put their faith in him. Christ lives, and that means that everything else he said holds true. That God forgives you. He's not angry with you. Your sin and your guilt is gone. It is atoned for. He made full satisfaction for all of your sins. He was raised for your justification. Christ lives, and that means death doesn't matter. Christ lives, and death has no victory or or, or any sting whatsoever. I know uh, this sermon is long. I don't care. Um, But I want to leave you with one exhortation. You ought to be happy this day. Because Christ lives. Break your fast. Because Christ lives. You go home and you enjoy your family. Because Christ lives. You eat your fill and you drink good wine. Because Christ lives. And you sing louder than you ever have before because Christ lives. Christ lives and all of your loved ones who have died with faith in Christ Jesus are waiting for you in his loving arms. In the Father's loving arms forever. They wait for you. Christ lives and the day is coming when you will die. And then the day is coming when you will stand on your own grave. Alive. And all who believe in him will live forever. Amen. Alleluia, Christ is risen.